Hi, I'm Carrie Schmidt, and this is Making Sense, a podcast produced by the Star Institute in an effort to further our commitment to impacting quality of life by developing and promoting best practices for sensory health and wellness through treatment, education, and research. Occupational therapy best practices ask us to integrate knowledge into practice. On this season of Making Sense, each episode offers a different conversation aimed at translating the most current research into clinical action for occupational therapy practitioners. This season of Making Sense is sponsored by Calm Strips. Calm Strips began as a small piece of blue tape wrapped on the founder's finger. He looked a bit silly wearing the tape, not to mention he had a lone sticky finger at the end of the day. So then came the idea to create something that you could stick anywhere and take everywhere. You may need a little bit of calm. Calm Strips is unwaveringly dedicated to their mission to further destigmatize the need for support and help. Calm Strips, take a bit of calm with you everywhere. I'm joined today by Mim Oxenbein. Mim is an occupational therapist and a social worker who has been practicing pediatric occupational therapy for over 25 years. She received her bachelor's in occupational therapy from the University of Southern California and her MSW from the University of Southern California, Los Angeles. She received advanced training in sensory integration, listening therapy, feeding therapy, and infant massage. Her work in occupational therapy with children and youth has occurred in a variety of settings, including early intervention, school-based, clinic-based, mental health, and private practice. As a social worker, she provided case management, program development, and program management. Mim has taught both graduate level and professional continuing education courses since 2013. She has spoken internationally and has co-authored works for professional publication. She is currently in the role of Director of Education at the Star Institute, where she has been since 2017 at the invitation of Dr. Lucy Jane Miller. Mim, welcome. Wow, she sounds cool. (laughs) She is cool. I can vouch for her. She's not just a, the director of education. She's she, a friend. So that person welcome. sounds interesting. Well, thank she you for having me, Carrie. I'm very excited to do this today with you. So when I asked you to do this today, we talked about um, maybe pulling the thread of something you've been curious about. Um, maybe it's revisiting a topic that you were curious about in the past, but just something that um, felt like you would like to go back and visit it or learn more about it and Mm -hmm. talk about it with a a colleague. So tell me about what you chose for us to talk about today. So I chose um, play, but more specifically, I wanted to talk about the interpersonal neurobiology of play for so many reasons. Um, I chose that topic because, well, I'm an occupational therapist and pediatrics has been my practice and play has always been the bread and butter of what we do. And we're, and I was also a child of the seventies and Mr. Rogers and play is the work of the child. And then I'm also fascinated by the brain. I always have been in the unique and complex um, workings of humans and interpersonal neurobiology play just kind of hits all of my favorite spots. I love it. Yeah. Um, we're going to put this full reference um, in the show notes, but the title of the book that we are pulling a lot of this discussion from today is The Interpersonal Neurobiology of Play, Brain Building Interventions 
for emotional well-being, and the author is um, Teresa Castelli. Um, so I love that title in, for so many reasons, but I thought it might be fun to unpack it kind of concept by concept. So interpersonal neurobiology and play. So let's just start with play because I do think um, one of the things that's tricky about play is that defining it can be difficult for people. Yeah, there's also a cultural component to that as well that needs to be taken into consideration. Um, there are entire books in our discipline on play and looking at the different theoretical and conceptual um, aspects of play and how you define it. So I think that's a great place to start. Yeah, so tell me a little bit about maybe some of the properties or features that you are drawn to when you're reading about play. I don't think that there's one perfect <laughs> definition, so I won't put you on the spot to give no, a specific yeah. definition, but maybe something um, that has jumped out at you when you read about play that you really resonate with. So the things that I really resonate with, and I think they, there are three things as I'm thinking about it. One speaks to the child in me, um, and that's that play needs to be joyful. It needs to be fun. Um, there's a difference between play and something being playful mm -hmm. um, or having fun parts to it. But play itself is fun. So that speaks to me. Um, the occupational therapist in me is drawn to the fact that play is, is really intrinsically motivated. It needs to be about what draws on the individual's joy centers. What, what is play to them? So um, it must be intrinsically motivated in my opinion. And then finally, I think the social worker in me recognizes um, the not always, because there's a lot to be said for independent play, but the relational components of play are very meaningful. And, and even if we are talking about independent play, the, the cognitive um, foundations and capacities that are built. So, the, so right, that was four. Sorry. Was <laughs> you can have things. extra. Yeah, <laughs> my brain's like still going. But those are like, so, like it's got to be fun. It's got to be intrinsically motivated. You're doing it for the sake of doing it. And when it's done with others, that it's really rich in this relational component, um, which is what as OTs, you know, we're pulling on all the time, whether we recognize it or not. I love that because even the private components of play, um, when we do see children who play well together, or sorry, play well by themselves, mm -hmm. sorry, um, or follow an interest, or that's their preferred way of playing, I notice they're very... Um, happy to have someone observe or even want to show you something about it. So mm -hmm. there is even for those kids who find it very satisfying to be alone in their play, there is that relational component of um, allowing someone to, to yeah. into that world. There's a pride. There's a pride. There's a desire to share and connect around something that draws me in. And I, like, for example, I'm noticing that a lot with my six-year-old right now. We are all about the Star Wars. And all about the Star Wars Legos and the Star Wars imaginary play. And this guy is remarkably quite happy to engage in these things independently. But then he will bust into wherever I am. Let me show you the new lightsaber moves I've got. Or look at this piece I just completed. And there is a desire to connect over the play that he's still quite happy to engage in maybe independently. I love that. And I think one of the best pieces of parenting advice I've ever gotten and I can see and hand that on to parents that I work with is when you're not sure 
how to play. Maybe it's not in your repertoire. Maybe you weren't raised that way. Um, just join your child in their interest, right? Just sit on the floor while they're playing their Star Wars Legos and they will draw you in, right? Just pick up the other lightsaber and um, see if they want to have a lightsaber battle. Yeah. Sit next to them and ask mm -hmm. them about maybe the, the video game that they want to play. Yeah. Um, and so just like, if you ever frozen, <laughs> follow the lead. And you know what, it's child. That, and I know you brought that up, Carrie, in relationship to it being a fantastic piece of parenting advice, but it's actually the exact same advice and training we get as clinicians if we are engaging in um, a training similar to that, like DIR, right, of floor time. Rule number one, wherever that kiddo, wherever that individual is, you meet them there and, and you build from there. And so I think it's more, it's, it's fantastic parenting advice. That's also, as a clinician, I've used this exact same advice when I've walked in um, and with, with a child and not been sure where to go. Um, then I join them where they're at and see where we end up going together, which is probably a different place than either of us would have gone trying to pull the other Right. So I'm thinking of a particular child that I have video of from um, a program here at Star who happened to be um, who is on the spectrum. And I just adored him. I mean, I just adored him. <laughs> and he was six. At, but what really was what really drove this guy is he really liked to invert his head. And so that's really all he wanted to do was find different ways to invert his head. And so I just ended up inverting my head with him one day and that kind of blossomed into like a whole other thing that because I kept that mantra, what's, what's engaging to this person and I'm just going to meet him there and let's see where we go because me pulling isn't working. So um, let's, let's do this together and as occupational therapists that co-occupation of play is incredibly powerful. It is incredibly powerful and it's a paradigm shift for a lot of people. Yeah. You know, we, we ascribe to the star frame of reference. We, our clinical work is done within the star process. We teach it, we both mm -hmm. teach it. And I do find that there is a resistance to, um, <clears throat> only because it's, it's different. Um, and it was, this is true for me that when you start working within that frame of reference and process, one of the hardest things to let go of is my own ideas about what's going to happen in the session. And so for it to be playful, it has to be child-led. It has to come from their, like you mentioned, intrinsic motivation. It has to be involuntary. It has to be done for its own sake, not because I decided that this is what we were going to play with today. I couldn't agree with you more. And I reflect on my own practice. I agree with you. Like that's a big shift um, for any pediatric-based OT, sensory or otherwise. Um, even for sensory though, it's a big shift to go from the plan in my head that I know will work for you and I can make this fun to well, what's your idea and how do I infuse it with what I know is going to support you? And that's a very different way of doing things and looking at things when I reflect on my own practice over the years and a therapist that I've worked with and watched. And it's much easier 
to have a plan and to bend others to your will? <laughs> well, I think it's just in my comfort, right? Like, oh, I have a plan. I'm going in here. I'm not going to look like I don't know what I'm doing, right? Especially as a new OT. But I think it goes, harkens back to your differentiation between what is playful and what is play because playfulness is fun. Oh yeah. Right. But what but the features of play that make it different are um, some of these features we're trying to pull the thread on. And one of them is flow. It's almost like, mm -hmm. you know, it after when you're in it or after it happens, that right. that was not um, playful. That was, was play. play. That was uh, play. I agree. And the worst part about flow is you can't plan it <laughs> because it requires an organic aspect. Um, typically, you know, it, it definitely, we talk about it in OT, it can happen for individuals on their own 100%. But for children, it so happens in that relational context. You can't plan that. It takes two of you to create that flow in that moment to construct something new that hadn't existed in the world prior to the two of you coming together, right? And that's, that's a really wonderful experience. Yes, and when you've experienced it, you, you know you can get back there. But yeah. I do think some people might find, find that concept a little woo-woo, right? Like, okay, like, yeah, flow, <laughs> what is flow? But I, I think some of the, the features we're picking up on mm -hmm. um, would, if you put them all together, would help you realize, oh, that was flow, that was mm -hmm. play. Like a feature you might, um, talk to parents about is did you lose track of time yeah like when you start losing track of time you might be in flow right, right. um did you um like not want it to end, end. yeah um were you trying to hold on to it right yeah. like you might have been in flow yeah and and to me and it's interesting like now you've got me thinking about like an adult version but I wonder if at some point, so when we were talking about play and one of the things that I love to talk about is Pankseps work, the play circuit. And why don't we teach a little bit about it? Um, these circuits, these seven circuits that Pankseps found, but this particular circuit in the brain that he um, labeled as play because it's only activated when we are playing. I wonder if there is, if that, if flow, is the adult adolescent equivalent of that circuit being switched on, hmm. right? That it's the same loss of time. It's the same sense of fulfillment. It's contentment. It's, um, you know, not wanting it to end. I know as adults, we've probably all encountered those things with different engagements, but I wonder if it's a similar circuit or the same circuit, right? That is activated, that's called play, but maybe this is the adult adolescent version. And as I know, we both are parents of adolescents. Um, I know that I can get into that space with my teenagers. It doesn't look the same as it does. We're not doing the same kind of things as I do with maybe my six-year-old, but we can get to that same state. There is joy. There is not wanting it to, and there's true connection in, in doing a bunch of different things. You mentioned the video game. And like, this has been reported like that playing the video game together can't, that is play. So if, if there's, you know, the shared context and the relationship around it. So I don't know, it's just a thought. No, I love, <laughs> I love reframing it for different developmental periods because it looks different. Yeah. And like, it's much easier 
for me to um, play Star Wars with a six-year-old mm -hmm. than it is for me to think, what would my 13-year-old daughter find playful right now? Exactly. Um, it Because her interests um, change on a daily basis, <laughs> which is a wonderful, beautiful feature of adolescence, but um, they're, they're, they're exploring, they're exploring their sense of identity. And so they're, you know, their interests follow. So they're not always interested in the same things. It can be hard for me to predict what that's going to be. Mm -hmm. um, and so it looks a little different than it did. Like, oh, he's yeah. in a Star Wars phase. So I know, <laughs> predictably, I can go to. A, and uh, yet at the same time, I find that at least between parent and child, as a therapist, it, this is different, but there are features, at least maybe this is more <laughs> my family's neurology, but there are features that seem to hold. There is this um, uh, somatosensory component, the tickling, the wrestling, the touching of one another that, you know, um, when I went through infant massage before I ever had children, they talked about the power of touch as a connector um, as something that can help you attune. And it's such a big part of attunement, right? Between infant and parent. And yet I find like with my almost 18 year old male child that sometimes what he, what we reconnect on is that little game of like, you know, I touch you, I stop, like almost like a peekaboo, but like just to get his attention, then it's back and forth. And then the next thing we know, we're kind of wrestling, right? Safely. Um, but um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's just so interesting to think about how some of these things are so foundational and fundamental across age spans across cultures and that so much of it is like you were saying is is related to this neurobiology is related to this is how humans are set this is some of the hardwiring and I think play is hardwired it is I mean I think that's what pink yeah. can say that it took me like two years pink's up work yeah. shows us um you know that there is a circuitry that there is a hardwiring um, humans are hardwired for this. And I, I think it's a great segue into talking a little bit about the brain development um, because it's circular. Um, like mm -hmm. we talked about how touch, and um, I'm also an infant massage instructor like you um, and did the same training. And one of the, the things that is so beautiful about it, especially in, in the stage of infancy, and I imagine again, at the teenage brain development level is that touch speeds myelination. Um, and so, it's not just um, one one way, right? Like it's circular, like play feeds brain development and brain development oh, feeds play. play. Which is so true with so much of what we do, right? As sensory integration, as sensory processing, um, focus therapists, we also, rec there is that upward spiral, right? That the, the more that we improve sensory integration, the more that we take on challenge for ourselves and increase our skills, which speeds which improves our sensory integration, which, and it's just this upward spiraling. And I think so much of human development is that, right? It looks a little bit different for each of us, like what our spiral looks like, but that these things, this is how we, the interactions between us and other people, between us and our environment, our experiences impacts the way we then interact with other people and that interact with our um, environment and, and process our experiences. And it's just this ongoing dynamic and bi-directional dance. Um, it's very complicated, but it always pains me if somebody tells me that there's a child who doesn't play, because I think that's highly unlikely. 
I just think maybe it's not what what they're doing, their version of it maybe isn't recognized or acknowledged. But I believe we all play, that the brain doesn't know how to do anything. That is, you know, that doesn't have, there is not an organism on this planet that hasn't experienced it or isn't set up to experience it. I like that, not not set up to experience it. And that's, I think, one of the reasons we're drawn to this title, right? Like mm-hmm. we recognize this is not just a, like a frou-frou idea about play. There is a neurobiology behind yes. this play. Yeah. And we both graduated um, OT school in 1996. And Oh, wow. <laughs> just put that out there, Carrie. <laughs> just, wow. Um, <laughs> Just in the past 25 years, like we can see um, beautiful, wonderful, rich advances in science, um, in understanding the brain, in neuroscience um, and psychology specifically, um, that just make what we believed to be true explicitly true. Yes. Um, Yeah. And I think um, probably part of the reason you and I were both drawn to this book in particular is it did exactly that, right? And there's some other... um, texts out there that I think do the same thing, but it's what I found in reading um, this and what I find in, in a lot of the interpersonal neurobiology series in general is um, it just kind of validates something that I always thought was so. And now it's like very clearly, oh, there's brain science that, no, this is so, this isn't a concept. This isn't a theory. It's like, nope, this is a thing. This is a real thing. And this is why what we do matters. And this is why how we do it makes a difference. Right. Because we come to um, the therapeutic relationship with tools, right? With our own temperament, with um, a lot of, you know, reading and research. Um, but to be able to sit across from a parent and say, this is why play is important. Um, and it's it's proven by science. I think we both value that. Um, and our model values that and is always being pushed forward by science. We are a model that's super open to learning from science and evolving the mm-hmm. way that we think about things. And I think one of the, um, the most significant things that has been proven um, that helps with this is neuroplasticity. Yes, neuroplasticity, one of my all-time favorite things. Now, since you've already put it out there when you and I both graduated and started working, <laughs> I will just draw attention to the fact then that in that other millennium, I know in my sensory integration training at the clinic I was at in Los Angeles, and generally speaking, at the time, most sensory integration clinics topped off at age 12. They wouldn't really take kids after 12 because the belief was, well, the the intervention's not really going to make a difference. And that's not even on the table anymore. Like nobody talks about that. Everyone recognizes brains stay plastic. Maybe it's different, right? In terms of periods of growth um, and and what areas of the brain grow at certain windows. But the fact remains, we all continue to grow and change in our central nervous system. We have to, or we die. We don't, we won't make it in the world because the world keeps changing and the challenges change. So um, yes, neuroplasticity, I think is a major part of this and, and the recognition that children come in as those sponges, right? And they really do absorb and then will lay down the wiring associated with the experience, what they experience the most um, and what leads to their survival as well as their enrichment. Um, I don't think, 
adults are that different. You know, most of us, especially we, either the jobs we take, the kind of lives we lead are the things that bring us the most regulation and hopefully the most joy, but certainly the most regulation. <laughs> I just think it's a message of hope. You know, when neuroplasticity lasts through a lifetime, we didn't know that. Right. Um, and it, it might look a little different, like you said, because we made choices for ourselves in a different way as adults. Um, but we know that we can change our brain structure um, throughout a lifetime. And so I, I love that message. I think it's so hopeful. We talked a lot about features of play. Um, I'd love to talk what features have we seen in this book and research mm -hmm. specifically that are do support brain development. Like we talked about touch, for example, and how we know that it speeds myelination right. of, um, of neurocircuits. So let's talk a little bit about what ingredients do promote brain development from a scientific perspective. All right. So we just like throw one out there and, then, go and then just like dive in. Yeah. Okay. So, so many, so many places to start with, but let's start with um, regulation. That happens to be one of my favorite things. And um, okay, so when I'm teaching, and I know you've heard me say this, like when, when, and we are, we are often asked by therapists and it's a really valid question. This client is so complex, so many different issues and needs. Where do we start? Where do we start? And my, my answer is now more than ever regulation, <laughs> whatever it takes from whatever vantage point that is, if it's a relational tool that's required, if it's a sensory tool that's required, if it's, if it's something else entirely, regulation because our brains don't function, don't grow, don't improve unless without being in regulated states. And so play, like you were talking about these loops and that's what just, I just love this. Like, first of all, you can't engage in play unless you're regulated. Well, simultaneously, once you're in a state of play, at least in Pangsep's work, if you're in a state of play, you are able to take your regulation to the edge. You are able to engage um, in activity and emotions that would take you to the edge of becoming dysregulated. Fear, um, uh, anger, even um, sexual arousal, all these, all these things in play can occur. And takes you right to the edge, but it's because it's in this amazing context of the play experience that allows you to actually still stay regulated. And that's changing the brain's capacity to be regulated when it experiences these other potentially dysregulating situations that have anger, that have fear, that all of these things that it's, I can survive this and I can rebound from it. And it's in that play that we get to do that. So for me, like that is one of the fascinating features of this circuit that I think is so relevant to the work we do. And also as a parent, um, and just as a human, I think it's like super interesting. And supported by neuroscience. And, and we're seeing neuroscience. so much work in this area. I used to think of regulation as being in a calm alert state. Mm -hmm. And I think regulation can have that feature, but I think of it more, a little more dynamically now as um, my nervous system can, has everything it needs to meet the demands, like the current demands. Of, and I'm of not overwhelmed. World. And I'm not overwhelmed. Like mm -hmm. I'm within myself, I can meet the demands 
of my internal and external worlds. Yeah. Um, that's, that's a great way to define it. I, 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 and so one of the things I was thinking about when you were talking is um, this giving a safe context, um, a safe um, place to experience and practice and stretch the muscle of regulation. It's the context of play. Mm-hmm. It's like I can, um, you know, be a superhero and push the absolute limits of volume, of speed, mm-hmm. of, um, you know, even um, tackling towers or, mm-hmm. you know, think, doing things I might um, be shy to try without um, the play of, you know, mm-hmm. putting on a costume mm-hmm. and becoming Superman or, or some other superhero. And it allows us to over and undershoot uh, our levels of arousal and repair it. Mm-hmm. without losing, um, like with, while saving face, I don't really know how to say that, but like, it wasn't me doing that. That was Superman. Yeah. Well, I mean, right? but we, and okay. So we can even see that in adult models. Um, Beyonce has an alter ego, Sasha, Sasha, Sasha wow. Can't even talk today. <laughs> Sasha Fierce that in interviews, she's often talked about like this Beyonce going out on stage in front of thousands and thousands of people felt very overwhelming. So she has this alter alter ego. It's role play. It's imaginary play. Like this is who is going out on the stage. And it provided her with the wherewithal, with the regulation to deal with the same situation, right? But manage those overwhelming aspects of it and still stay engaged and still meet the demand. That was her. So I think about those people who have alter egos. And I think that it's, it's an extension of play. Right. Like you said, like, well, I was a superhero when I was six. So now, I'll, you know, I can, why not now too? You know, if that's what I have to do in my head. So I think we do that a lot. I think we do too. I don't think we think about it as play, yeah. um, but I think it is play because it does allow us to experience the flow. Like you said, um, play yeah. with our regulation, you know, be able to sustain, engage, loosen some time all of that stuff without without getting overwhelmed. Yeah, or threatened. I like that. Which brings us to, um, I think, an interesting component, and that is the somatosensory component of play. That's also one of my favorites. Um, Because, you know, even in the descriptions we we both used, um, there's a lot of action. Yeah. That in both of those play schemes that we just described, Mm -hmm. there is a lot of somatosensation. Um, The bodily representation um, of play um, is really important. It is. It certainly is in Pinksepp's work. Like he actually, in his definition of play, there must be a somatosensory component. Um, but he's talking about anim- like mammalian animals in general. He's not talking about just humans. And I know a lot of people are like, wait a minute, you could have all sorts of play um, that's much more in your head. And yet, yes, you can. And we are actually often see kids who that is their style of play. It's a very independent play and we often see that these kiddos also get stuck in that play. It doesn't grow as much. And I wonder sometimes if that's because there isn't a somatosensory component. They're not moving through space. They're not engaging another in in it. They can really see the screen all in their head. And as a result, like how much growth is there in the problem solving, in the negotiations, in the expansion of their characters, of their storylines, if they're limited to the projector and the screen. See, projector, that's how old I am. 
there's no more projectors, <laughs> but like to the screen, that's you know where the story is playing out in your head, and how much more difficult it is to engage another or not. It's a movie for one, but when there's a somatosensory component, um, and we're moving through space and time, it's there. There's other opportunities for another to to cross paths with us and to engage simultaneously. I believe, which brings me to embodiment. I think like I want to pull the thread of vestibular because I just yeah. think it would be so cool okay. to talk about, you know, like action, body-based action patterns mm-hmm. or how play is inherently action oriented. Yes. Um, and you, you know, in season one, um, there is a, um, a conversation in which we can talk specifically about the vestibular system and embodiment. But I think in play is inherently embodied, right? We bring our body to play. Yeah. Um, and it is crucial to, to experience play, um, embodied play, um, for the development of schemas, um, for a uh, memory making, mm-hmm. for um, laying down meaning mm-hmm. about play schemes. I was just about to say meaning. Yes. You read my mind. Yes. Yeah, no, I agree. I think, um, that play is an embodied activity and again like all I can think of is like and it's still true when you look through the lifespan like what most people enjoy there is some aspect of body involved right some kind even if you're not an outdoors person even if you're not a workout type person there's probably something are you a knitter you know like where are you an artist are you like you know you are somehow there is some kind of body um, experience that that's that body brain connection that that's what gets you into that joyful state. It does, and if embodiment's a new concept to you, I think one way to think about it is if you were to say walk, go on a walk, and you walk past a park, how would you know who was playing? Mm-hmm. You know, and there's mm-hmm. so like look at their bodies, mm-hmm. and you would see gestures you would see vocalizations. Their posture would be more open. Um, so interesting takes. Yeah, no, it's like, it takes me down this other path. So there's a primatologist, Franz DeWall, Franz DeWall, um, who talks about, and actually he's a colleague of Pengsep, and, um, and he talks about the fact that as primates, we are wired, we are wired to communicate our inner states through our bodies that we need to stop fighting the fact that our bodies are part of this process, that it's not just all in your head cognitive. There is a clear emotional interconnection between the body and the brain and and we transmit that, right? Just like you're saying, like, how would you know? You watch body language, you watch facial expression and those, you know, and that goes into the poor, just polyvagal, right? As well, like we transmit these states for all to see so that we can get a better understanding of where one another is and how play is such a big part of that practice of the creation transmitting of the states. Um, I don't know, that's kind of where it took me. No, and where that takes me is the interpersonal piece Mm -hmm. that we've kind of skirted around this idea of um, play happens in the context of of relationship Um, although sometimes we recognize there is Mm -hmm. there can be solitary play right you can lose track of time you can find flow doing something you love and enjoy and it can be the same a similar experience but Mm -hmm. I think going back to brain circuitry um, and even going back to the richness of play 
when it happens in the context of relationship, it almost seems like it brings all of this together. together. I agree. There's a richness there. And often um, one of the things that as pediatric therapists that families come to us about is that the child may be having difficulty in play with others. That maybe, you know, we have kiddos who come in and the family feels they are having difficulty playing, period. But then we also have the, they play fine on their own, but they just don't know how to do it with anyone else. And interestingly enough, there's this innate recognition of, for some reason, I know that that could be a potential problem. Like, I don't know what the value is here, but even as a parent, like, I know it's important that my child be able to play with others. And yet we can't really put the finger on it in, inherently. But we do know that it's value. And I think what the science does, what our clinical training does is help us go, oh yeah, this is why this is so important. And to your point, this play in the context of relationship pushes everything on it. That's right, because the same way you can stretch regulation, you can mm -hmm. stretch um, relationship and figure out what is acceptable in a relationship and what is not acceptable in a relationship, you know, in play, whether it's agreeing on rules, for example, or physical proximity. Um, and if it happens in the context of play, um, it's a little uh, maybe easier to learn the lesson. It's not as like, you know, threatening to your persona. That's right. Um, because, you know, oh, we were just playing. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry that I got too close to you, but I, I was just playing, mm -hmm. you know, or, or learning the signs that another gives when they yes, had yes, yes, enough yes. or want more or all of those things are within that context. And that's why I love it because it doesn't matter what the cultural background, like it, the context of play will, those things happen within that cultural context. It is inherently respectful of the cultural context in which it's occurring because of those who are involved in it. So, and it's also a great way to learn about other cultures through play and engagement that way. You know, when we think about learning about other cultures, typically, if you watch a lot of these shows like I do, especially during COVID, where you'd like to be anywhere but in your house <laughs> and you're learning about other, you watch things about food, right? Which is what I think a lot of people think about. But also, if you can engage in a lot of people will try to find, so what do you do for fun mm -hmm. and try to meet people there? And it's how we learn about one another in that safe, because you just throw up your hands like, oh, I didn't know the rules. Oh, okay. That was just me goofing around. Oh, okay. Now I understand. And, but it's safe to do it in that context. I love that you use the term meet someone there, because I think one of the things we try to do in therapy is teach attunement, mm, right? And just yeah. introduce the concept. Um, a lot of times, um, this is a very natural thing for people, um, but when you encounter um, either a, a child that could be your very own child that maybe has a different set of sensory preferences, that has a different, um, you know, uh, maybe a neurodiversity that you also don't share. Um, and so, um, not to put you on the spot, but talk a little bit about attunement, how we define it a little mm. bit, and how meeting them there made me <laughs> not, made not me to put me on the that. spot. I like how you preface that. Yeah, um, but just so when I think about attunement, and this is my social work training, actually, I think about right brain, right brain connection. That's how it was explained um, when I when I got my mental health training. It's about this connectivity between the right hemisphere to another person's right hemisphere, and the idea idea being that the right hemisphere um, is really where we do a lot of our implicit 
processing and memory making. It's where these implicit understandings live. And so um, you don't need language, you don't need, um, it's about the recognition of another's emotional state. Not just recognition, I take that back. I think recognition is the first step, but recognition and then understanding of that state so that you can respond in, a, in an appropriate, meaningful, and supportive manner. That's, that's attunement. It's, it's about, um, and when that happens, that's when you establish connection. Yes. It's a, it's a willingness is what I hear you saying. Like mm-hmm. A willingness to open myself up to your experience. Yeah. To, to acknowledge it. First, I have to keep my eyes open for it, right? Which is, I think, um, so often the step I know I've missed sometimes in therapy where if I've reviewed a tape and been like, and it was right there and I just blew past it. Um, so I first have to recognize something's happening and then be able to go, okay, so what, what could this mean? As a therapist, I think we're trained to think, what could this mean in a lot of ways? As, an, as a parent, there's this emotional pull. We pull on our own experiences, right? About what could this mean? And I think this happens a lot in interpersonal relationships a lot and why we often have miscommunications because there's an assumption of, well, that was my experience, so it must be yours. Um, where attunement, opens you up to say, so you're having an experience, I can recognize that you're having this experience. And then let's think about what, why you might be having that experience. And sometimes that means relying on the tools that work for me. And sometimes it's thinking outside that box about what, what works for you. It's others focused. And, and it others is, focused. you know, it, it. it is what, one of the things, again, we could put it under properties of play or ingredients in play, right? Mm-hmm. It becomes other focus. It becomes a lot less about us. It becomes, I become a lot less self-conscious. Mm-hmm. I, um, I'm sharing this with you. And mm-hmm. um, it, it's just, I think attunement is a beautiful, again, part and ingredient, but it's in a rich um, relationship experience when you can attune with someone. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, to share that connection. Yeah, and it's interesting because physiologically what happens, I don't know, have we ever talked about this? So physiologically, when we are attuned to one another, when there's a, and I'm using the term connection, and right now, like you can, I know I'm from Los Angeles, and we could could go into like what, where I go with these things, but um, there is a sinking of nervous systems. There is a sinking of heart rates. It's part of why co-regulation works is that, there's this sinking between us and there, is, there are physical and physiological changes that occur. Um, attunement is what's needed for co-regulation and co-regulation is what's needed to develop our own self-regulation. And there's so much there that one can unpack, but like, um, so I think in play, that's one of those things that happens is the sinking where both of our heart rates are elevated. Both of us are coming down, both of us, like, and you're doing this in connection that reinforces those responses in the brain. Um, yeah. We could so do this. We could day. do this all day. <laughs> oh, I just, we could go on and on. We'll have to maybe do a part two as we continue to think about this. But one of the questions I do want to ask before we wrap up um, is um, at STAR, we really value question asking. We value curiosity. We um, have space in our model for to evolve as science evolves. Um, And we love to listen to um, um, a lot of different voices Mm -hmm. to help move us forward in what we understand to be true. So 
that means sometimes we have to change our minds yeah. about things. Yeah. Um, and so I was wondering what's one thing you once believed that you either changed your mind about or your thinking has really evolved in? I would say it's more that my thinking's evolved. Um, I can't pinpoint one thing that my mind's changed about. I'm sure there is something, but for me, the power of relationship um, in the occupational therapy context, in the context of play, um, it gives new meaning to child-led, you know, in that, in that sensory integration model that I was trained in in Los Angeles. The power of relationship that being in supportive, nurturing, attuned relationship has positive brain change and impacts as well, that, it's, that it, it is a legit tool as part of our arsenal that we can use in our intervention as well as empower other parent, parents and teachers to recognize and use for um, their, their own interactions with, with the child or another is um, probably like one of the biggest things that I've walked away with in the past four years of being at STAR is really the, yeah, my, my evolution in like, wow, this is not something to just think of as an extra therapeutic alliance has taken on like a whole. Um, so yeah, I think that that's probably been one of the biggest evolutions for me. No, I love that. Thank you for Thank doing this you. today. I always leave our conversations thinking about more things to talk about. Um, I love the way you think about things. It stretches and, and grows the way my brain works. Um, and so I loved um, having this conversation and I'm super excited to share it. I'm super excited to hear any feedback you get and what other people are thinking about in terms of play. I just, I love it. So thank you so much for including me. Yes, thank you. You can find me, Carrie Schmidt, on Instagram at Carrie Schmidt OTD. That's C-A-R-R-I-E-S-C-H-M-I-T-T-O-T-D. The Star Institute is a nonprofit organization. You can find out more about us at our website, sensoryhealth.org. That's www.sensoryhealth.org. There you can join our email list, find out about our educational, clinical, and research endeavors, and make a donation. This podcast wouldn't be possible without our wonderful guests and the support from the Star Institute, especially Crystal Hayes and Tori Pluchek. Your feedback matters to us. Please leave a review, subscribe, and share this podcast with your friends. This is Making Sense. I'm Carrie Schmidt.